How many people here have ever thought that you have to be good for God to love you? How many people here have ever thought that if you aren't good, then God will stop loving you? Most people, if they're honest, would raise their hands to those questions. And most people think that this is what the Bible is all about. Most people think the Bible is filled up with a bunch of rules that you better keep or God won't love you. And most people think that the Bible is full of a bunch of stories about heroes like David or Daniel setting examples that you had better follow or God won't love you. I've been there, done that, got the proverbial t-shirt. I have tried to be good. Man, have I ever tried to be good? I've tried so hard to be good enough, but I have realized a little too late in life for my liking, but better late than never, I have realized that I can't keep the rules all the time. And so when we approach the Bible this way, and when we turn every story in the Bible and every poem in the Bible and every prophecy in the Bible into a moral lesson, what we end up doing is making the Bible all about us. But the Bible isn't mainly about us and what we are supposed to be doing. It's about God and what he has done. It's about Jesus and what he has done to save sinners. The Bible is most of all a story, a beautiful love story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. That's what Advent is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. The Bible is the good news that in spite of everything, no matter what, whatever it costs him, God will never stop loving his children with a wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. The Bible is a love story, not a rule book. And there is only one hero in the story, and his name is Jesus. Understand, the Bible is a love story. The king comes to rescue his girl from the clutches of the dragon. The king then slays the dragon, gets the girl, and it ends with a wedding celebration. It's a classic love story. It's not a rule book, because rules don't change you, right? Does the speed limit sign change you? Does the speed limit sign change your heart? Rules don't change you. But a love story, God's story, can. And so every time we open up the Bible to read it, leaping up off of every page is this good news. Jesus loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's true. He really loves us. He really loves you. He loves the real you, not just the Instagram you. The Instagram you is all dolled up with filters and perfect poses and correctly placed silverware next to your bed, bath, and beyond plates and bowls. Jesus knows exactly how many pictures it took to get just the right one to post He knows the real you, who you really are deep down. 
and he loves you. Wow. I mean, you may be thinking, me? How could he love me? Do you know what I'm really like? Do you know what doesn't get put on Instagram? How in the world could God love me? Do you know what I did last week? Yeah, I know how bad you are. I know the Instagram you is not the real you. And so does Jesus. And he continues to love you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And to prove that to you today, I want to read something from the prophet Isaiah. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. If you're visiting for the first time, we've been in an Advent series called God Saves Sinners, and we've been looking at the prophet Isaiah. He lived in the 700s B.C., and Isaiah's name means God saves or God to the rescue. And Isaiah preached a bunch of sermons in his day, and they eventually got collected in a book, which is in the Old Testament, and we simply call it Isaiah. Clever, huh? And we have been looking the past few weeks at a few vignettes from Isaiah's sermons that scholars, Old Testament scholars, have dubbed the servant songs. There are four of them in Isaiah's prophecy. And we call them servant songs because these snippets of Isaiah's sermons speak of the servant of the Lord who would come and save sinners. And we now know that that servant is Jesus the hero of every story in the Bible. So Isaiah preached about Jesus coming in his first advent, and Isaiah preached it some 700 plus years before Jesus actually came. Some 700 plus years before Jesus was actually born in that little podunk town of Bethlehem. And so let's look at Isaiah's fourth servant song. It begins in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and it goes all the way to the end of Isaiah 53, verse 12. And I'm tempted to ask all of you to take your shoes off during this sermon as we look at God's word, because this is holy ground. Isaiah's fourth servant song is like the holy of holies of all holy grounds in the Old Testament. This is the gospel turned up to 11. Like in the movie, This is Spinal Tap. Isaiah's amplifiers go up to 11 in this chapter. And honestly, I'm not sure I can do this passage justice. We're just scratching the surface today. We could preach on this passage for several weeks, probably even months. So we're just going to skim our way through this servant song. And I'm also tempted to just read it and not preach at all. Just read it and read it and read it over and over again for the next 35 minutes and let the Holy Spirit go to work on our hearts. It's that precious. It's that beautiful. But we won't do that. Isaiah 52, verse 13. The fourth servant song of Isaiah, the gospel turned up to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Wasn't that beautiful? I know, I know, I I should have warned you. We're going to be looking at Jesus, and Isaiah tells us that Jesus was so marred, so disfigured on the cross, that he didn't even look like a human being. Can you imagine that? Blood, sweat, tears, blood, guts, blood, cuts, blood, gashes. Did I mention blood? Clearly, this is not merely a flesh wound. So yes, our passage today is all about blood and guts, and it smells, it reeks like death. But isn't it precious? I hope you think so. And I know Isaiah does. He tells us right at the very beginning of his fourth servant song that the servant of the Lord will succeed in his mission. He tells us right off the bat that Jesus will succeed even though there's all this blood and guts and smelling like death business in this section. And the Hebrew word in verse 13 that Isaiah uses that is translated as act wisely, the servant will act wisely, has the idea that a person takes such wise actions that it brings forth the results that they envision. It's the Old Testament word for success. Like in 1 Samuel 18, it says that David had great success and King Saul stood in awe of David's great success. That's the word here. So Isaiah is telling us that even though Jesus suffered immensely, even though he didn't even look like a human being when he was on the cross, still he would succeed in his mission. And we see that in the rest of verse 13 as well. Because Jesus succeeded in living a perfect, sinless life, and because he died a brutal, bloody death on the cross for your sin and for mine, Isaiah tells us he is highly exalted. I like the way the New English translation translates verse 13. It says, look, my servant will succeed. He will be elevated, lifted high, and greatly exalted. Other translations tell us that Jesus was raised, lifted up, and exalted. And so in verse 13, we actually see the resurrection, the ascension, and the glorification of Jesus some 700 plus years before it actually takes place. He is raised. That's his resurrection. He is lifted up. That's his ascension to heaven. And he is greatly exalted, glorified at the right hand of God the Father. So the very first line in Isaiah's fourth servant song, the very first lyric begins with a triumphant note, a victorious note. The servant will succeed at his mission. His mission to redeem God's elect people. Jesus will be raised up from death, Isaiah says. He will ascend into heaven and he will be glorified at the right hand of God the Father. But why does Isaiah begin his fourth servant song with triumph? And it's actually how he will end this servant song too, which we'll look at in a moment. 
But Isaiah begins and ends his song with victory, with a note of triumph. But why does Isaiah begin this way? It's because he is going to say what he is going to say about Jesus and how he suffered is so dark, so hair-raising, so spine-tingling, so blood-curling that if Isaiah did not start off in triumph, then one might wonder how anyone could survive what Isaiah describes here. Isaiah knows what's coming in the rest of the chapter and the next, and so he tells us right off the bat, Jesus will succeed. Why? Because this chapter is going to get real dark, real fast. It will get turned up to 11 with the hair-raising, spine-tingling, blood-curdling death of God's own son for our sin. Isaiah tells us here that people would be astonished at the sight of Jesus on the cross. Why? Why were they astonished at Jesus? Because his appearance, Isaiah says, was so marred beyond human recognition. We're talking blood and guts everywhere. Jesus was beaten, whipped, kicked, punched so badly that he did not even look human. Can you imagine that? I mean, picture the disciples looking up at the body of Jesus hanging on the cross, and their first response is not, is that Jesus? Is that a rabbi? Their first response was, is that human? What is that thing hanging there? Is that really a human being up there? Listen, this is how much God loves you. He allowed his son to die a brutal, bloody death on the cross for your sin. I mean, this is what Christmas is all about. And Isaiah tells us that the, I can't believe it's a human servant, would sprinkle and cleanse many nations with his blood and that kings would stand in awe of him and worship him. But please understand that the suffering servant on the cross is not to be pitied. He is to be worshipped. He is to be adored. We are to see him all disfigured. And as we look at him, we wonder, is that really a human being on the cross? We're to see him that way and not pity him, but stand in awe of his amazing love and to worship him. But worship isn't generally first people's reaction to the gory sight of Jesus hanging on the cross, is it? The very first thing that we notice about the crucified servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 is that he looks... Well, crucified, bloody, gory, not human, despised, and rejected. Look at Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1 now. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
So Isaiah tells us here that God rolled up his sleeves and got involved in our lives to save us. He rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty to save us. The rolled up sleeve that Isaiah mentions here, the revealed arm, is the symbol of personal intervention in action. God takes action to save us. He rolls up his sleeves, he looks around heaven, and he says, okay, let's start saving sinners, shall we? And it's a good thing that he does, because every single one of us is a sinner. And we know it, even when we try to deny it. We've all failed to be the people that we know we ought to be. We have tried to be good enough and to keep all the rules, but we have failed. So we have this deep unease about ourselves, and that's why we live in denial. That's why we think, I'm not that bad. So our guilt just gnaws at us and gnaws at us and gnaws at us, and sometimes it is almost unbearable, isn't it? We know deep down that if we have to answer for what we've done and how we've lived and what we've said and how we treated people at Target as we were shopping for gifts or what we thought about people as we were shopping at Target for Christmas gifts. If we know that we're going to have to give an account for all of this stuff, then we'll just be buried under the weight of it because it's too much, isn't it? So much sin. There's just so much of it in our lives. So we're claustrophobic because there's just so much sin in our lives. And so how can God love us? Really, how can God love us, people like us? Well, Isaiah tells us that we have to look to the servant to find our answer. But please understand, as Isaiah tells us here, that if you were to see Jesus back then, you wouldn't be impressed with him. He didn't have like perfectly feathered hair that just kind of flowed in in the breeze. He didn't have like a glow around him. If you passed Jesus on the street, you wouldn't be awestruck. If you saw him at Starbucks, he wouldn't have seemed special to you. He was just ordinary. An average-looking Joe, a run-of-the-mill Israelite. He was the eternal son of God, yes. He was the sinless eternal son of God, yes. But he was just a normal guy. He didn't have a charismatic personality that drew people in. He was just an ordinary guy, Isaiah says. And if you passed him on the street, he wouldn't stand out as Mr. Charismatic Personality. His Instagram page would have left you underwhelmed. Isaiah says Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. But what we read about the servant next is absolutely mind-blowing. So buckle up, y'all, because Isaiah expects us to be flabbergasted by what he says next. And what he says next is irrefutable proof that Jesus loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always, and forever love. Never stopping. It's never going to end. Never, uh, that's it, I'm done. Forget it. You're on your own. No more of that. Jesus doesn't love us with that kind of love. It's an unbreaking, always, and forever love. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Why was he a man of sorrows as Isaiah describes him here? Not because he landed as a number four on the Enneagram. Not because of his personality. He was a man of sorrows because he identifies with us and bears our sorrows. He enters into our pain and our suffering. And yet we despised him and we esteemed him stricken by God. People looked at Jesus and said, you must have done something really, really bad, buddy. If you're hanging on a Roman cross, then you messed up big time. God must be after you. But he wasn't pierced for his own actions, his own sins, because he never sinned. He was pierced. He wound up on a Roman cross, not because he was bad, but because we're bad. He wound up on a Roman cross because of what you thought about someone when you were shopping in Target this week buying Christmas gifts, and that person cut you off. Or they grabbed the last Chewbacca out of the Star Wars aisle. He died for that. People struggle to believe what Isaiah is saying here. We are bad. People don't like hearing that. But it's true. And Isaiah knew that he was bad. That's why he uses these Hebrew words like transgressions and iniquities. Now in Isaiah 53, 12, we'll see the specific Hebrew word for sin. It's the specific way in which we have all fallen short of God's glory. We've all missed the mark. It could be in thought, word, deed, or motive. But the Hebrew word iniquities that Isaiah uses here refers to the warp in our nature. In other words, nobody had to teach us to do wrong. It's just there. We are totally depraved, warped by nature. That's iniquities. But the Hebrew word transgressions that Isaiah uses here, that refers to our willful rebellions. So we might go to God and say, it's not fair that I have iniquities. Adam sinned and it came to me. It's not fair that I inherited a sinful nature. It's not fair that I'm bad, that I have a warped, depraved nature. I inherited that from Adam too, God. I had no option but to go wrong and do wrong. But the Hebrew word transgressions here implies that we willfully rebel. We choose to rebel against God. We want to rebel. Ugh. Think about that. We want to be bad. Let that settle in. We actually want to be bad. That means then that to come to Jesus, you have to admit that you are bad. And Isaiah knew that he was bad. That's exactly what qualified him to preach about the servant. I like what Jean LaRue says. 
Why is it that when it comes to Christianity, we believe that you have to be good, righteous, moral, and upright to talk about Jesus? You see, it's actually sinners who are the most qualified people to talk about the gospel. It's the people who need Jesus who are qualified to talk about Jesus. Listen, when we reverse the paradigm and believe that you have to be good to talk about Jesus, what we've missed is the gospel. And that's why only bad people make good missionaries. When it comes to the redemption of sinners, it just may be that the needy, broken, messy people are uniquely qualified to talk about redemption, not the cleaned up, victorious evangelicals. There's only two organizations in the world where you have to be bad to get in. The first is the church and the second is the mafia. You have to be bad to get in. Think about that. We won't let you join the church. You can't come forward. You can't go to a new members class. You can't join if you're a good person. You can only be part of the kingdom of God if you're desperate and needy. So you can't come to Jesus unless you admit that you're bad. It's like the mafia. You gotta be bad to get in. To join the mafia, you gotta be willing to whack somebody. You gotta be willing to fit somebody with a pair of cement shoes and then to walk away and say, forget about it. Gotta be bad to get into the church as well. And if words, the the words that Isaiah uses here like sin and transgressions and iniquities, if that doesn't convince you you are bad, you're a sinner, then maybe a word like sheep can. Because that's what Isaiah says we're like. He says, we're like dumb sheep who have wandered away from the fold. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, please don't misunderstand Isaiah. When Isaiah calls us sheep, he's not flattering us. He's not saying, oh, you're just a cute little itty-bitty sheep. I just love you, little precious. It's not what he's doing. When Isaiah calls us a sheep, it's a cut down. He's roasting us. Why? Because sheep are messy, and sheep are dirty, and sheep smell, and sheep are dumb. And Isaiah says, that's what you're like, and that's what I'm like. Professor John Holbert describes sheep this way. Sheep need constant watching as they stick their ever-hungry snouts into the grass below them or into the hinder parts of the sheep in front of them and wander without a thought up and down the land, eating and defecating and straying up dangerous hillsides and down into rushing waters, foolishly risking fleece and mutton again and again to the utter frustration and consternation of the shepherd who must be constantly vigilant lest another of her charges drown or fall or be snatched away by the lurking predators of the forest and vale. Shepherding is no pleasant walk in the dog park. It is hard, dusty, smelly, constant labor, and if I am a sheep, I am lost without a shepherd. Isaiah says we're sheep because we've wandered away from God. We're just up hills, down into rushing waters, putting ourselves in dangerous places, but our shepherd is not 
frustrated. There's not consternation on his face. He comes and looks for us. He's the good shepherd. Comes to bring us home. Because we're all like sheep and we have all wandered away from God. We have all turned to living for us in our own little kingdoms, which is why we want the closest parking spot at Target. Because we're the king or the queen, right? Don't they know that I'm pulling into the parking lot? They should scatter and give me the best spot right up front. We have all strayed like sheep. And how does God respond? We've all willfully rebelled. We've all wanted to be bad. We've all wanted to turn away from God. And how does God respond? Does he send lightning bolts to zap us? No. He sends his son Jesus and places all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our rebellion on his son Jesus. What? We broke the rules and Jesus takes the blame? We have gone astray and the Lord laid our sin on him? Huh? Does that seem crazy to you? That's Christianity. That's the heart of Christianity. That's what Christianity is all about. God justifies The ungodly, a good God declares bad people good. This is the love of God in full volume. This is the love of God turned up to 11 here. This is proof that God loves you. He never stopped loving us even when our sin was placed on him. He never gave up. Jesus never broke. And amazingly, this is so mind-blowing to me. Jesus never mouthed off to anyone either. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Suddenly, the mouth of the servant has caught Isaiah's attention. Three times he mentions Jesus' mouth here. He's interested in what the servant did or did not do with his mouth. Now, why? Why is that? Probably because most of the trouble and harm that comes into this world is ushered in because of what we do with our mouths, isn't it? When Jesus was beat up and spit on, he never once replied inappropriately. No bad words, no four-letter words, nothing. And do you remember what Isaiah said about his mouth, his own mouth, back in chapter 6? He saw God in his glory and he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the Lord in all his glory, and what's the first thing he thinks of? 
I run my mouth all the time. I gossip about people. I slander people. I get on Facebook and write mean things in the comments. And yet here comes the servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. He opens not his mouth. No bad words. No four-letter words. No violence. No deceit in his mouth. Oh, how we should marvel at how pure the mouth of the servant is. We should be humbled because you know what? We do run our mouths all the time, don't we? Who is this servant? How does he not run his mouth the way we run our mouths? The answer, of course, is that the Holy Spirit empowered him. He's the Spirit-anointed Messiah. And as we saw last time, he had an ear open to the Word of God. So he never sinned with his mouth. Every word that came out of his mouth honored God. Wow. It's like that old TV show, That's Incredible. That's incredible. Jesus never sinned as a teenager dealing with sinful brothers and sisters. It's amazing. My kids fight all the time. Jesus never once sinned with his mouth. That's incredible. And the good news of the gospel is that you are, if you are in union with Christ, You've repented of your sins. You've turned from living for you and you were trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's the good news of the gospel. His perfect record of perfect speech gets credited to you. And when God looks at you, he looks at someone and he sees someone who has always honored him with their mouth. Wow, we are declared righteous. God speaks from his mouth over us and he says, you are are righteous. You are blameless. It's as if you have never sinned. You are not guilty. And that's exactly what Isaiah says next. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This was the eternal plan of God. This was God's heartbeat in eternity past to justify sinners. And so verse 11 is the Old Testament version of justification by faith. This is the miracle that many people stumble over. People don't typically stumble over Jesus walking on water. That doesn't bother them. That doesn't upset them. But this miracle will cause people to stumble. God justifies the ungodly. Doesn't matter what they've done, what they've said, how bad they are, how many people they killed. If they trust in Jesus, God looks at them and says, not guilty. And people stumble over that miracle. God declares bad people good. The most outrageous miracle at the center of the gospel is that the servant justifies, declares righteous the ungodly. And then, 
He invites them into his home to celebrate his victory. He spreads a feast before them. They become family. They have a seat at his table. That's exactly how Isaiah ends his fourth servant song. Jesus will divide his spoil with us and invite us over to his house to celebrate. He says, you're coming to my house for Christmas dinner. My house is your house. Me casa is su casa. Come on over, take your shoes off, make yourself at home. Go into the fridge, get anything out you want to eat or drink. In other words, we can get in on this Isaiah 52, 53 stuff. People like us can get in on the spoils. We can get in on the servant's victory. So God is saying to you today, do you want in? You can share in my spoils. I did all the work, and you're welcome to come over and celebrate with me. Will you come? I have a place right here at my table reserved just for you. What are you waiting for? Come on in and have a seat. Let's celebrate. This is just God offering you the treasure of himself. That's what God's offering to you today. Himself. No strings attached. All of God for you. God is saying to you and me this morning, hey, listen, I am available. I am ready to welcome you. You have to decide if you want me more than you want your own safe status quo life that you have carved out for yourself. What say ye? Want to give it a go? Let me ask you this morning. That safe, comfortable, status quo life that you are so afraid to let go of, why is that so great? Why is that so appealing? Living as the king or queen of your own little kingdom of self, why does that feel so satisfying? Whoever told you that Jesus is a bad risk and not worth pursuing? You see, we're meant to read the fourth servant song and to go all in with God. We're meant to read these verses and be absolutely awestruck that people like us could be welcome into God's family. We're meant to finish reading the last of Isaiah's fourth servant songs and to say, and to, say to one another, Jesus really loves us with a never-stopping Never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. We're supposed to look at one another in awe and say, I can't believe we're here. I can't believe they let us in. Wow, Jesus really does love us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I can't believe we're seated at his table. Be quiet, don't ruin it. You can't, you're in. In spite of how messed up we are, in spite of how bad we are, how broken we are by Adam's sin, how warped we are, Jesus really welcomes us. And so the sin that we can't seem to shake, the sin that we just can't seem to forget that holds us back from just really barging into Jesus' house and sitting next to him at his table, that sin that we can't seem to forget, Jesus cannot remember. So if you barge into Jesus' house and sit at the table next to him, he's not thinking, oh, you just did that last week? I don't know if you deserve to be here. 
He says, he says, hey, what took you so long? That's the gospel turned up to 11. He invites us to enjoy the spoils of his victory. He forgives. He cleanses us from the awful stain of our sin. And that's how Isaiah ends his servant songs. He tells us that in spite of how bad we are and how dirty we are, Jesus succeeded in his mission and now he accepts us and he invites us to enjoy the spoils of his victory. So we're going to close with something that Chad Bird said and let this be your invitation to Jesus this morning. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you have not repented of your sins, which means that you just own up to the fact that that you're a rebel. You willfully disobey God. You want to. You're a sinner. You think bad thoughts. You get mad at people in the parking lot when they take your spot. You're willing to admit all that and say, God, I've lived for me. I've made me number one. You're willing to confess that and turn to Jesus. If you're willing to do that this morning, this invitation is for you right here Right now, you can start over with God today. So come and open the empty hands of faith. Jesus will welcome you. Jesus see you. He'll take off running and give you the biggest hug in the world and say, what took you so long? I'm so glad you're home. I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting. Turn from living for you and turn to Jesus and be spared eternal suffering in hell. What's holding you back today? Come on home. And if you are a Christian, this invitation is still for you too. It's for all of us. So come. Come with your sin. Come with the junk that still resides in and comes out of your heart and mouth. Come with the sin that you can't seem to forget because Jesus can't remember it. Come, you pole dancers. And Sunday school teachers and crazy old cat ladies, come to the feast. Come, you snotty-nosed brats and dirty old men and abortionists, come to the feast. Come, you Bible-thumping Baptists and smells and bells Anglicans and holier-than-thou Lutherans, come to the feast. Come, you virgins and porn stars, you pious and predators, you straight as an arrow and you LGBTQs, come to the feast. It is finished. The lamb has been slain. His blood has painted the wicked world white. His table is laden with life and there's a place setting with your name written on it. Come to the feast. Have you slept with more people than you can remember? Come to the feast and be welcomed as a pure virgin in Jesus, the righteous one. Have you murdered and stolen and raped and devastated life after life along the way? Come to the feast and be welcomed as a saint by the Holy One of God. Have you vomited up more meals than you've digested? Cut yourself just to feel something real? Starved yourself to skin and bones just to feel unfat. Come to the feast and be welcomed as drop-dead gorgeous by the one who is incarnate love. Have you faithfully prayed 
fasted, done devotions, served in soup kitchens, tithed from your gross income, and memorized 1,000 Bible verses, there's room at the table for you too. Come to the feast and be welcomed by him who takes away your filthy righteousness and clothes you with his own. Come to the tomb of Jesus and laugh at the ugly, deformed, twisted face of death. Come to the throne of Jesus and let the Father hug you and kiss you and wipe your tears away. Come to the feast where evil and good, wise and foolish, shameful and shaming are welcomed as citizens of the kingdom. Let no one say, I am unworthy. For Christ makes you worthy. Let no one say, I have sinned too much. For your sin is no longer your own. Let no one say, I don't believe enough. For Christ is trusted perfectly in your stead. Let no one say, I have blasphemed. For Jesus has exchanged your curse for a blessing. Everything is ready. Let no one be left hungry. Gather all and bring them in. Go to the highways and byways, bars and alleys, nursing homes and hospitals, seminaries and sex shops, and bring them to the feast. Let no one be left behind. The world, the whole jacked up, navel-gazing, sin-loving, evil-addicted world has been set right by the God who died and rose again. All are forgiven, all are covered, all are welcome. Come, one and all, come to the feast. So you are welcome today. All of this good news can be true for you if you turn from your sin and you trust in the servant of Isaiah. So come, repent, and come on home. Let's marvel today that God saves sinners. Let's marvel that he lets us in. We are welcome at his table. Let's marvel that there's a place setting with each of our names on it. And let's worship Jesus today. Let's adore him. Jesus, we do worship you and we adore you. What amazing love you have shown for people like us. I marvel that you never used your mouth the way that I use mine every day. I marvel that you lived this life without ever sinning. It's amazing. I'm flabbergasted that you never sinned. And I'm even more flabbergasted that you credit that to me, your perfect life, in exchange for my messy, sin-soaked life. You're so good to us. Thank you for the invitation to come and to enjoy you. Thank you that you greet us with a hug and you, you kiss our neck and you say, I'm so glad you're here. May you be glorified in our lives and may you be glorified in this church. And as we enjoy this good news, may it stir our hearts that we go tell others about you as well and that we invite them to the feast for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.